Hi, I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show, or welcome if you're here for the first time. If you are here for the first time, this is quite an episode to join into. Um, I just listened back to this episode because I was really nervous about releasing it, Um, but I'm super happy about it, and I'm really grateful uh, that Steve came on the show, and I hope to have more conversations with uh, people about this topic, about race, which is very contentious and very taboo and very scandalous, um, but I think really needed at this time. And I do think these conversations are happening more and more frequently. And I'm grateful to be able to be someone who can have these conversations without getting canceled or whatever, fired, um, as so many people do. Um, this is probably the last episode or at least the second to last episode that I will be uploading before leaving Crestone, Colorado for probably a year, which is really crazy. Um, I was actually just thinking back to a year ago at this time, also leaving Crestone to head out in the van. And, uh, I think I posted the episode that I recorded with my brother actually. And I remember sitting on our empty stripped mattress, uh, talking about, the state of the world and what I sort of anticipated was coming. I haven't thought about that episode or that intro in a while. I think I spoke about America's astrology chart, astrology chart and the Pluto return that America is going to be having in the next couple years. Um, yeah, it would be kind of interesting for anyone interested that wants to go back uh, and hasn't heard that episode. Was I right? Was I right about what was happening? It's still unfolding, so we probably don't know. But yeah, just a sort of transformative time every time you leave a new place, I leave a new place, um, or make a transition in my life. It's, I don't know, it's very interesting for me to think about things like that. I feel like I've begun to see my life in chapters, um, or maybe not begun, maybe I've always seen my life in chapters. I always just sort of felt like this is the decision I'm making now, this is the thing I'm doing at the moment, but it doesn't always have to be like this. I'm not necessarily going to always have this career or this client or live in this place and um, sort of felt good. It was sort of like taking something day by day, but taking your life chapter by chapter in a sense, sort of just really being able to experience it for the moment that it is, you know, not seeing it as like, oh fuck, I broke up this relationship and, you know, now I have to be doing this other thing that I don't want to be doing. But what if we sort of looked at all those stages in our life as little, little bubbles in and of themselves that contained happiness and joy and lessons and, um, invitations to keep going. I don't know, just my way of seeing and incorporating changes and transitions in my life of which there have been so many. Um, 
yes, I am excited to bring you this conversation today. Uh, one comment that I wanted to make before you take a listen is just the whole concept of subjectivity. Um, I so frequently try to, and if you listen to the podcast, you know this, try to bring up as many sort of nuanced, paradoxical, differing positions and opinions as possible. Because I think within all of that, within that sort of mess of contradictions is the truth. And even if we can't find the truth, at least questioning all of those different angles of something is what eventually leads us there. And I've been thinking this way for so long. I think I started to think this way when questioning my father's homosexuality, questioning why the entire society viewed homosexuality as bad, and yet my dad wasn't. I think it partially stems from my time uh, living in Paris when I was young, when it was very, and traveling quite a bit when I was young, uh, and sort of getting all of these differing experiences funneled into my own brain. Um, but I always kind of think about like, why is it Anya? Why are you so obsessed with looking at all these um, nuanced positions or looking at and examining something from a cross-cultural perspective? And I, I think there are many reasons why uh, I'm super into that. But I think one of them is because it, for me personally in living life, I, I do think it's important to understand where our objectivity meets our subjectivity. And I really, again, I mean, it sounds so like, I don't know, philosophical and stupid to be interested in the truth, but I really am interested in the truth or at least going down the path that might lead us there. Um, and I think when we look at something and we look at varying different viewpoints or different opinions or different experiences, then we're better able to assess our own subjectivity. So for example, I have a friend who was raised by one parent, at least, who was like super into conspiracy theories, made a ton of actually really popular films that capitalized on a lot of sort of conspiracy thinking, um, you know, there are aliens and free energy and um, vaccines are horrible and um, our gene therapy, et cetera, et cetera, right? So this person was raised getting this very, very extreme viewpoint about society. And as they got older, um, developed opinions that very much sat apart from that parent's opinions. This person is not an anti-vaxxer, you know, maybe questions things, but does not agree in these sort of broad conspiracies or even things like astrology, etc. And in my opinion, it's like recognize this, recognizing the subjectivity of my friend's viewpoint as an opinion and a personhood that was defined through multiple different early childhood experiences, right? Um, I actually can say this for my brother as well. For example, my brother and I, as I think I mentioned on the last episode, um, were not vaccinated. And our parents weren't exceptionally fundamentalist about it. Really, the the opinion that we got was like, hey, we just don't agree with America's schedule for young infant babies to be vaccinated. We don't, we're not against vaccinations across the board. Um, but certainly when you get older, we encourage you to make your own decisions and do your own research about this. Um, and so obviously that very much informed 
my experience. You know, it made me, it made me think, okay, so these, whether it's a vaccine or anything else I participate in, as far as like the medical industrial complex is, is concerned that I sort of have agency to do my own research and make my own opinion. And I know that because I was raised with parents who questioned the status quo, who raised me with a box of, you know, homeopathy and, um, didn't want me to go on antibiotics unless absolutely necessary. I know that as an adult, I have a, I have more skepticism toward mainstream medicine than maybe someone who wasn't raised in that way would be skeptical toward it. Right. So if they were totally went to the doctor all the time, got all their vaccines, like no issue, just totally followed the standard, um, expectation for how you interact with doctors, and mainstream conventional medicine, you know, they're going to not grow up with the same sort of skepticism or distrust that I might have. And my friend who was raised by these conspiracy, this conspiracy theorist person, um, you know, I, I could see that person being raised and totally taking that on and, and also having distrust. But in this case, he had the opposite reaction. He decided like, no, um, I do trust science. I do trust data. And that's what I'm going to follow. But for me, when I go into anything, when I'm triggered, when I have an opinion, I always look at it from the framework of what am I bringing to the table here and what is actually true? You know, where is my skepticism about mainstream medicine, whether it's right or wrong? Like, we're not talking about whether skepticism about antibiotics or vaccines is right or wrong. It's not the point. It's just that I'm bringing something to the table that is personal and to make a rational and as, ab as objective of a decision as possible, I need to understand where that subjectivity lies. And I think when I bring up some of these topics on the podcast, whether it's race, as we're talking about today, or gender, as we'll be talking about in some future episodes, or sexuality, or I feel like my entire podcast with Aaron Horapur is, is like this as well, when... When, an in, when a new or different narrative is presented, it doesn't invalidate yours. I'm not expressing my narrative as true, um, and I'm also not telling you that your narrative is wrong. I'm just explaining that it's a narrative. And I'm not so sure that we can... I think we can do a lot of work, a lot more work than we have done in the public sphere to figure out where is our trauma and our trigger meeting some sort of objective truth? Um, although I think we can do a much better job at that, I don't even necessarily know if we can unpack that completely. I don't think we can totally ever peel the layers off of our experience um, to, to figure out what is 100% objectively true. So that's not the point for me either. But I do think is if we want to get closest to that, if we do actually want to grow and improve, we do want to recognize, wow, I'm really biased here. I have this experience that's making me super, super skeptical of conspiracy theorists or super, super skeptical of people who believe conventional things. But I know that this is the content that I'm bringing with me from my experience that's making me have maybe more of an extreme reaction than I would have if I came from some sort of like completely objective past, which isn't even possible. Um, but I just wanted to sort of briefly mention that, that to illuminate someone else's subjectivity, to illuminate your own subjectivity does not negate 
your experience or make it wrong. It's just that by recognizing what you bring to the table, I think we're better able to converse with each other. We're better able to step into triggers, step into discomforts and recognize like, maybe I need to adjust here. You know, I have a lot of X, so let's bring whatever is opposite of that to the table. This is sort of why I like the way astrology is set up as well, because it's all polarities, right? So you might have, let's say, a ton of Libra. You just have so much of it. Or you have your south node, which really speaks to, like, what you brought into this world, what you're really good at, what you excel at. And when you know that, when you know what you bring to the table, then you can say, I don't need to work on that anymore. <laughs> like, that's that's good. So let, let me look across the chart or let me just look at what is the opposite of whatever I'm feeling or thinking. How can I bring that up a little bit to level the playing field here? And then hopefully once you have a level playing field of like, let me reduce my subjectivity as much as I can and increase my rational objective mind, then I can move into making a decision or forming an opinion or creating a social justice movement that's actually based in reality and based in something that's going to help other people. So I was talking to a friend of mine about, I recorded this podcast several weeks ago and was sort of talking about how I'd recorded it and how I'm so interested in getting people's opinions who exist outside, you know, America, for example, if we're talking about an American issue, because I think it's through understanding and hearing those differing narratives that we can say like, oh, what I'm feeling isn't necessarily universal. This isn't a universal feeling that I can project on all women or all black people or all whatever. Um, this is a lot about me. And so how can I incorporate other people's experiences and other people's opinions um, as a way to move forward more productively? And I think we have this idea of like, well, that person didn't experience what I did, so they don't have a right to speak about it. And I think that's really harmful and really dangerous um, and certainly not the way that I live my life because I think, yes, of course, maybe that person hasn't experienced what I've experienced, but instead of thinking about how we're different and how that person doesn't understand me, maybe we can find common ground and maybe that person's already worked through some of this stuff that I'm still struggling with. And if I could actually sit down and listen to their opinion and their experience, maybe I would learn something about my own. Um, and so again, I've said this a lot, but that's what I really would like to encourage with some of these more controversial conversations, all conversations though, to be fair, this podcast as a whole, um, just really working on identifying subjectivity and, and owning it and knowing that owning it does not make us wrong or invalid. And in fact, owning our subjectivity, you know, illuminates the rightness or the truth more clearly than I think anything else could. So I'm going to play you into today's episode with a song called A Thought is Just a Passing Train by John Moreland. Um, I love one of the lyrics in this song. It just repeats, shame is a cancer. <laughs> and I honestly could not agree more. Um, before we get into the song and this conversation, if you would like to support the podcast, there are so many things you can do. If you listen to the podcast on iTunes, you can right now, if you're holding your phone, scroll down past all the episodes. There's a little spot there to leave a review, leave some stars. This helps the podcast reach more people, show up more in search results. 
Um, if you have a few extra bucks to spare and would like to not only support the podcast financially, but also meet like-minded people, lots of them, um, learn things from them. Uh, the Patreon community is really the place to do that. When I say learn things from other patrons, I actually host patron-led workshops. So if you're a patron of mine and you have a skill, let's say you are really into seasonal foraging or you're an astrologer or you are a budding Reiki practitioner. These are all real stories from real people in my Patreon community. Um, you can teach a workshop, uh, work on something that you've been trying to construct, sort of allow other people in this community to um, help you grow and help you expand your practice. So we just did a couple of astrology uh, workshops this past month. We will be doing a Reiki one uh, and maybe one other one next month. Uh, in addition to the workshops that I host for patrons, we also have a book club we are officially going to be reading Women Who Run With the Wolves. Uh, we're going to be reading that in June and July and then meeting via Zoom in early August to discuss. I also have patron-only podcasts, book lists, uh, contact list, stickers, lots and lots of different things. Um, the best place to find out more about that is patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. If you want to cut straight to viewing the different tiers, it's basically five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, or 25 bucks a month. 10 bucks a month is definitely the most bang for your buck. You get the most stuff for the least amount of money. Um, and if you go to patreon.com slash join slash Anya Kotz question mark, don't know why there's a question mark there. Um, you can see all the different tiers and the benefits there. Um, but really even just posting, um, episodes that you enjoy on Instagram, tagging me, emailing something to your friend that you thought was valuable, that they might find valuable as well. Just sitting here and spending this time with me. It's all fucking amazing. And I'm grateful for, for all of it. So thank you. Um, please enjoy this song. Please enjoy this conversation and I will catch you on the other side. Thank you. 
Okay, we're live. I'm here with Steve and I'm like giddy about this conversation, (laughs) which I feel like, I don't know, maybe I'm one of the only people, including you on the planet, who feels like just really passionate and ready to talk about things in nuanced ways um, and not fall victim to the status quo of so many of these identitarian movements. So I found you on Medium. You were writing about race in ways that like made me want to stand up and clap. Um, <laughs> <laughs> some background about me in this podcast. I, I started this podcast in late 2018 um, and I was going through like a huge sort of transition in my life in my late 20s, like going through this huge dark night of the soul and the Me Too movement had just started and I I was just really appalled actually at like the fundamentalist fundamentalism of the Me Too movement. And yeah. as a woman these whole tropes around like believe all women or the future is female. 
I mean, I was just thinking to myself, like, oh, I've totally, like, manipulated men <laughs> and, you, and used my power to get what I want. And yeah. the fact that we're not speaking about, again, like, the nuance of this or the, you know, just the fact that we're we're projecting all of this blame outward and not thinking about our own participation in things. Um, yeah was really mind boggling to me. And so I started like wasting my time posting Facebook rants and then decided to like do something more productive and start a podcast about it. Um, but I, you know, and I feel like this back in 20, um, 2017 ish is like a lot of the sort of anti-racism stuff started cropping up, especially in like social media spaces in America and, I was, I think confused for a little while, like, Oh my God, am I, a huge racist and, like, <laughs> and, and, is, and, and are all of my questions that I have about this, like they all had a term like, Oh no, that's like, you know, white savior, this, or you're a white, this, or like, I was yeah, like, yeah. God damn, like there's really no room for discussion here. Um, yeah. and quickly, I think applied a lot of my reasoning about other movements to this movement as well in many ways. Um, but it literally took me two and a half years <laughs> to like find someone <laughs> who wanted to have a conversation about it. So thank wow. you. Um, your writing on Medium is has been really great. And I'm really just excited to like uplift your voice and talk <laughs> about these things. I don't know. I, I think I, I also felt a lot of guilt about um, like I all throughout my podcast have wanted to have discussions about race with mm -hmm. someone who is black, preferably. <laughs> um and felt quite intimidated, actually, and, like, scared to do it because I didn't want it to be me sitting there being, like, attacked or blamed. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I can definitely understand yeah. that from reading on Medium as well. Like, if you're reading articles about race on Medium, I think I, think I would be hesitant to have conversations with race with some of the people who are writing about it on Medium. It's, it's right. just a massive minefield. Right. Right. And I, I wanted to have the conversation with someone who was thinking about it and like talking about it, but I never could really find people who were talking about it in the way that I thought like, oh, this will be a productive back and forth, not yeah. like a, let me just sit back and silence myself and listen <laughs> kind of a thing. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's enough about me. I'm curious uh, to hear a little bit about you and sort of where your, um, why you decided to start writing about race in this way what your reaction was to this sort of broader anti-racism movement. Um, and I know you also don't, you live abroad. You're clearly not mm. American, although I've heard you no. spend a lot of time in America. Um, so I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm curious if like a, a good portion of your reaction to it was from like a cross-cultural perspective or um, yeah, I'm just sort of interested to hear how that all started for you. I think my perspective on race is really built around, um, I was born and raised in the UK, um, okay. but I have family in America. I've been over there plenty of times. And then for the past, I'm not even sure now, maybe like eight or nine years, um, I've been effectively kind of stateless. So I've just been traveling around the world, um, working remotely, um, writing. Mm -hmm. And um, I've just been of no fixed period. Like I've really enjoyed living like that, just seeing the world. And I've traveled over huge amounts of it. And it's been fascinating to watch um, or to see how differently race is treated in different countries. You know, sometimes right. it's a huge issue. Sometimes it's very positive. Sometimes it's quite negative. Sometimes it's not really an issue at all. And um, it's, it's been really interesting to kind of see those differences and talk to people and interact with people and, and see how, for instance, I mean, with no exaggeration whatsoever, um, 
what's the, what's the what's the best example of this? Probably Vietnam. Vietnam. I was walking around Vietnam. I was frequently mobbed, literally mobbed by like Vietnamese students would come running up to me. Oh my God, like, you know, touching my skin. Can we have photos with you? I had like group photos. I remember I, it was amazing, actually. I'm not sure if this is really appropriate for this podcast, but I met a girl Anything while I was out there. I met a girl while I was out there and we, you know, we'd been on like a date or two and we're walking around looking at some touristy stuff. And all of a sudden I, this maybe like 20 students came running over when they saw me and were like, Oh my God, you're, can we have a picture with you? Like, and they were talking to me in English and stuff and practicing their English with me. And this girl who, you know, barely knew me was like, are you a celebrity? What the hell is going on? Like, who are these people? And I'm like, Oh, this is just normal. This is just how I roll, you know? But it was kind of like, obviously, you know, I'm this huge deal because I'm different and, and they're making this big deal out of me, but it's completely positive. It's not in any way, you know, they're curious and they're, they're, I don't even want to use the word ignorant, but there's lots of they don't know. They're just kind of like, yeah. what's going on? What are you? Um, right. But it's completely positive. And I think that it's a real shame that we've arrived at a point where it's kind of taboo to um, explore these differences in that kind of wide-eyed, innocent way. As soon as we have an, a, the fact that we're different to each other pointed out now, it's kind of a point of contention. It's a point of argument. Um, it's something where you don't understand me. And we also expect people to understand us straight away and fully and completely and respect us without having those conversations which lead to that point. Um, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I think that we're, and it, it, as you say, it goes across all kinds of differences, whether it be sexuality, whether it be gender, whether it be race. We've kind of really embraced this mindset of, oh, you're different to me. Therefore, first of all, you cannot understand me. We are poles apart and there are parts of my experience that we cannot rely on empathy for. We cannot rely on conversation for. You are just alien and you have to accept what I say. And then we we kind of other each other because of it. And we blame each other for things which have nothing to do with us. Just because of the fact, oh, you're part of that group, therefore you are necessarily X, Y, or Z. By the way, though, don't you dare do that to me. So if I'm in a minority group and I say, right, okay, because I'm black, um, I can say X, Y, and Z thing about a white person. But if a white person says X, Y, and Z thing about me because I'm a black person, all of a sudden you have a problem. And the same again is true of across male and female lines or it's cis and trans lines or straight and gay lines. It's... It, <sighs> It's, it's just so depressing, you know, it's so kind of confusingly dumb. And as you say, it kind of leads to situations like the Me Too movement where there's just this kind of hard line. OK, this is what you have to do in order to be an ally. You have to accept what I say. You have to buy into everything that I say, no matter how extreme it might be. And there is no room for discussion about it. And if you try and discuss it, what I would do is use language and use vocabulary to shut you down. So I've got all these terms, as you said which I can use to say, oh, yeah, you're just doing this, and I'm just going to put you in that box now. Um, The fact that things seem to be getting so much worse across all these lines um, is is just emblematic of this problem, I think, this breakdown of communication. Yeah. So when you saw a lot of this start sort of cropping up, not to necessarily say that it's new, but I do think there's a certain like flavor of identitarian movements these days Mm, (laughs) um, that's sort of begun recently. Um, were you ever sort of, did you ever like take 
were you ever like taken aback by like, am I crazy? Like, <laughs> I know you. Oh God, no, no. I'm far too arrogant for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, and I'm assuming, so once you started seeing a lot of this writing and a lot of this, the framing of this movement in such a way that you were just like, oh, hell no, I need to. Well, see, this is the interesting thing. Something. So yeah, like, yeah, exactly. So with, um, yeah. I saw, I saw a lot of it as I saw, I saw me too, but I saw a lot of stuff before that as well, as you say. Um, and I was kind of like, you know what, I'm just going to stay out of it. It's fine. A lot of it was is then generally around women. Um, and I was like, okay, fine. You know, um, men are all terrible. We all suck. I get it. Fine. No problem. And um, it didn't really, you know, it didn't affect my life. It was not a big deal. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, the thing that's really important to bear in mind, I think a lot of us are very, very online. And normal people, they aren't really buying into a lot of this stuff. So I'm like, okay, you know what, fine. Um but then, as time went by, I was seeing more and more of it about race. And it was just starting to really frustrate me because I'm like, I understand these issues. I've experienced a lot of the things that you're talking about. But I keep on seeing voices being elevated, which just do not represent me at all. And not only are they being elevated, but there's publications which kind of have these huge platforms. And they still are, they still are now. Um, but they, again, they push these voices forward instead of anything counter to that narrative at all so it's kind of like, I don't even object to the fact that you're putting these kind of extreme voices on on a pedestal but where is the balance I know there are other people who aren't just consumed with bitterness and resentment out there like can we hear from those too please right so I read a number of, of articles like this um it was when I kind of started writing on medium I was reading more of these things um, and so I started just commenting. I was starting this like, okay, but seriously though, like, what are you talking about? And I would, you know, really try and frame my responses considerately and politely. And, you know, I back up what are my assertions, whatever else. And, um, at least 50% of the time I was just blocked. No, no reply, no nothing, just blocked. And like I said, I was never, ever rude. It was never anything that they could use that as an excuse. Yeah. Um, I'm like, okay. And then, you know, every now and again, I'd um, write, I tell you what, there was one writer. I'm not, I, I, every time I talk <laughs> about this writer, I'm so tempted to like name drop her and I'm not going to do it. Partly because I don't want to give her any, any press and partly because, you know, it's not yeah. that cool. But anyway, there's a particular writer. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading one of her articles. It was this article about how, um, she was convinced that the whole of America was full of white supremacists who just wanted nothing to do with her to do nothing but kill her. All white people were just evil and were plotting her death. And I'm like, okay, this woman's clearly just not really psychologically well. So I'm going to be really gentle. <laughs> and I went yeah, in there yeah, the comments, yeah. and I'm like, look, you know, I understand where you're coming from. I totally understand where she's coming from. I get where you're coming from, but, you know, this is really unhealthy, and it's not the way that most people are, and blah, blah, blah. And she replied just saying, yeah, you know, thank you for your perspective. And, you know, I appreciate it. I'm like, okay, fine. Um, and then I saw another article from her, same thing and another, same thing and another, same thing. And I'm like, wait just a minute. Like you are either the unluckiest black human being on the face of the earth or you're full of shit. Like this just yeah. isn't true. Yeah. I don't believe you. You know, I don't believe that your life is just a constant avalanche of misery because of the fact that you're black. I don't believe you. Um, and she's still going strong today, you know, writing every couple of days. She's writing a new article about how her life is terrible and how the life of every single white person on the face of the earth is wonderful because of this magical white privilege. Yeah. So 
my first article I wrote about race was just a pure outpouring of frustration at that. I was just, I'm so done with this. Like, this is so done. And um, so it was, I kind of just called out the whole thing, the whole, like, why are these publications elevating these people who have nothing of value to say? Why is the conversation so totally, like, polarized and bitter and mean? Um, and unproductive as well. It's kind of like, yes, there are problems. I'm, I'm not in any way a racism denier, you know, but right. let's talk about them. Let's talk about them in a way where there is some hope that we can make some progress. Let's do that. Um, yeah. So I wrote that. It didn't really get much traction, but then I wrote another one a little while later and it got quite a lot. And I was like, oh, okay, so there are some people there who are kind of listening, who are also interested in a different perspective. Um, so that really just encouraged me to write a little bit more on the topic, just to actually kind of get a voice out, which wasn't pushing this same narrative and was trying to actually, <sighs> I think so many of these conversations, like I said, again, across all these different minority groupings are based around people telling their individual anecdotes of misery and sharing them on the internet where other people can pile in and go, oh yeah, I'm so angry about this too. And okay, you know, fine, the internet has a value as a kind of a therapy space, I guess. But it's also a wonderful place to share ideas, to actually kind of think about how can we make progress? How can we do something which will push progress forwards? And to do that, you have to frame things in a way which invites conversation rather than just exactly just condemnation of like, be silent. You know, if, you, if you're not part of my group, be silent and you have nothing to contribute. It doesn't move us forward at all. So um, I tried to find ways to be productive. It's so bizarre too, like the hypocrisy of it, right? Like that you were blocked by saying those things on that article, but God forbid we, I block someone who comes into my space and attacks me and gives me feedback that I didn't necessarily request. Then I'm a racist and a white supremacist (laughs) and all of these things. (laughs) The thing is also, it's just kind of like you're, I, it's not even, I don't think she blocked me because I'm black. I think she blocked me because I, t- I, I pointed oh, out yeah. how yeah. ridiculous what she was saying was, you know, and it's yeah. just kind of like, there's been a couple of times where there was one, print, I can't remember exactly what I wrote now, but it was an article recently, I wrote a comment on it. And um, it was quite a popular article. So, um, you know, as more people were coming in, more people were going through the comments. And my comment was kind of slowly climbing up the top as more people were reading it. And my comment was basically saying, look, you're being ridiculous here, like, you know, in as, in as polite a way as I possibly could, but this doesn't make any sense. And highlighting the inconsistencies in what she was saying. And I was watching it rise. And as it got to the top, that's when she, that's when she deleted it. Because it's like, oh, I don't want that dissenting opinion to be the first thing people see in the comments. And it's like, if you are afraid to engage with, with other opinions when you put yours on the internet, then don't put yours on the internet. You know, if you don't if you don't have the courage to stand behind what you say, if you think what my comment was wrong, then fine. Like actually say why you think it's wrong. That's no problem at all. But it's just an act of pure cowardice to say, oh, I don't like what you're saying. It disagrees with what I'm saying. I don't want other people to see it. So I'm just going to hide it. Um, And again, that's kind of that's kind of a common theme in these discussions. You know, it's just kind of okay. it's it's nothing to do with supporting black people. It's nothing to do with, oh, he's a black guy who's got another perspective. No, you are against my doctrine it's nothing to do with solidarity it's to do with um conformity to this idea totally 
Right. And that's that's sort of like I remember when I was posting all this stuff on Facebook, I remember I was getting private messages from a lot of people, a lot of women who were like, I don't have the balls to say what you're saying, but I totally <laughs> agree with you. Yeah. And it was like, wow, OK, that's interesting, because like you said, like you, these articles are getting traction. It's my opinion. I mean, I think it's my entire podcast audience. Like we yeah. all feel this way. But where uh, so many people are terrified of saying anything, and I think to me, I see the the blocking or eliminating of your comment of like, you know, these this movement doesn't work unless those types of opinions are silent. You know, this exactly. this movement is thriving on, um, yeah, like uh, conformity, fundamentalism, and silencing. Uh, yes. And so, just having an opinion, <laughs> you know, to the contrary. Uh, is threatening to them, I think. Oh, 100%, 100%. I kind of, I it, it struck me recently, it's kind of like this collective, um, you know, Munchausen syndrome. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like this collective Munchausen syndrome where you have people who, well, I'm going to be generous and say, I don't think that most of the people who are feeling this way are faking it. Yeah. Well, I think that what we have is um, there's this kind of top-down approach. For instance, you look at the reporting of race in the media. Um, the way that a black police shooting will be reported in such a way and the rate, the fact that a white police shooting won't be reported at all. It's just invisible. Yeah. Um, these, they're, they're happening. White people do get killed by the police. Hispanic people, Asian people, they do get killed by the police. But we don't see it. And so what it very naturally does in the public consciousness is it creates this idea that, oh, only black people are being killed by the police and it's happening all the time because whenever we put our mind to it, we can remember a case when a black person was shot. Um, so black people to kind of push this Munchausen's um, analogy of being told that they're sick your community is sick you're dying this is happening to you and this is this this is the illness that you're suffering from and every opportunity we have to reinforce the idea we're going to reinforce it and so what happens to people is they are gripped by this fear and it's this fear that's kind of being put into their minds because they don't and they aren't necessarily there's not necessarily a good reason for them to go oh let me go and check the statistics for myself let me go and see what really is happening here let me go and see this the specifics of a particular case and so there's just this fear being pushed into the community all the time it was the same thing actually during the me too movement it was constantly talking about oh men are doing these terrible things to women every time you know there was the the low point, I think, was the Aziz Ansari date um, yeah. story, right? And right. it's like yeah. a guy goes on a date. He's a bit of a he's he's um, he's insensitive, no question yeah. about it. He obviously isn't yeah. reading the room. Um, right. But Jesus, you know, seriously, like this is this is what we're going to try and get someone cancelled and fired over. Like it's it's preposterous. And it also, again, and the same thing happens in the black community. It, utterly, utterly robs women, in this case, of any agency. It's like, okay, when do we arrive at a point where a woman actually is expected to be an adult and say, you know what, I'm not comfortable. And, and that's literally yeah. all, I'm, that's all I'm suggesting. I'm, I'm not saying anything yeah. else. No higher standard than that. Right. You know what, I'm not really into this. And if he pursues that, then we have a real problem. It's very obvious and everyone should agree with that. Yes, if she says she's not comfortable and you continue, you're the asshole, end of story, it's a problem. But if you don't give any verbal indication that there's a problem at all, and then the next day you decide to put him on blast on the internet, Really? Like, is, is that is that what we expect of women now? Just, you know, so we have a scenario where men are just basically supposed to always 
I don't know what, know what's going through the mind of, of a woman or in, in, to take it back to race, you know, we have all these ideas of microaggressions where if you say, I mean, the number of times I said microaggressions, because I don't <laughs> know what they all are. I cannot keep up with the list as it updates, yeah. you know. We cannot do this. We cannot have a point where we just, we expect everyone to know what's happening in our minds without telling them. You know, if I say to you, I have a problem with you referring to race in this way. And I say, hey, you know what? Just would you mind not doing that? Yeah, the polite thing, the non-arsehole thing to do is say yes. But if I don't tell you that and I just get offended because you did it, what? You know, <laughs> like we can't, we can't function like that. I remember reading once, or not once, what am I talking about? A lot about like <laughs> the problems with complimenting black yep. people, specifically like black women's hair. Just like, are we, is that really like, okay, so if we rearrange this also into a different framework. So like if a guy compliments me, mm-hmm. you know, he's a rapist. Like, is that, yeah. is, I mean, it's, it's Those so, two things are equivalent. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm curious if you if you've gotten this pushback too, because it's definitely something I've gotten in critiquing all of these movements. Is that you know my my feeling is as I'm sure you agree. Like ultimately, where are we going? Ultimately, like are we actually seeking justice and equality, or are we just seeking revenge and retribution and compensatory yeah. injustice? Right. Um, Absolutely. So I'm always sort of framing it in that sense of like I'm it's I'm having a hard time seeing how the Me Too movement or the Black Lives Matter movement, at least in this sort of specific woke leftist context, um, is is actually moving us toward something that looks like progress. And the feedback that I get a lot is like, well, we need to do we need to express the outrage first. Like this is the first step toward that. Mm -hmm. And you should allow people to express their you know, their, their, um, anger and you should allow people to express their frustration. And then eventually, and I'm, I just don't, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't tell see you what, the line. I would buy into that if that was, um, you know, and then eventually, when's that event then eventually happen? Right? The civil right. rights movement is not new. This isn't a new thing. If we're going to let every generation have their, and then eventually moment. And it's like, what are you, what are you mad about? Like, if you're 20 years old and you're black today, what are you mad about? Like, you know, we are we are so far past the civil rights movement. Like, you have nothing to be enraged about. Racism still exists. There are still issues to be dealt with. No question for me whatsoever. But if you're a 20-year-old black person today, you've got nothing to be mad about. You know, you haven't seen the worst of these problems anymore. So what you're doing is borrowing outrage from previous generations, which is why, and again, you see this across the board, which is why it's so difficult to have a conversation with someone about these issues, who's someone who's passionate and in the world kind of sense of it, yeah. of these issues, and keep your conversation in the 20th century, in the 21st century. It's almost impossible. Almost as soon as you start talking, oh, yeah, well, in the 60s, this happened. And in the 1920s, women didn't even have the right to vote. Yes, I realize that. But yeah. when do we stop litigating that? Like, when do we start going, okay, yes, that happened. Because, I mean, for instance, like, <clears throat> I wrote an article not so long ago talking about um, uh, affirmative action and things like that. And I was, I was broadly justifying it and saying, look, um, uh, redlining, um, Jim Crow, these things ended like 60 odd years ago. So there are obviously still knock-on effects to those harms that we still see present today. People are still kind of digging themselves out of the hole that those problems put them into. 
Yeah. And so there's a degree to which it's appropriate to say, OK, what do we do about those ha- those housing problems? What do we do about the fact that like black people are still living in these neighborhoods which have poor education and blah, blah, blah. We can go on and on and on. There are definite knock on effects. I don't see the definite knock on effect of women being given the right to vote in the 20s. It's like, OK, cool. So we've had a good hundred years of women being allowed to vote like if there's something I'm missing, this is always possible, absolutely. Like, please show me what that is. But just the fact that that was wrong, I agree with you. But when do we go, okay, cool, but that was fixed. What do we move on to next? Like, what are we trying to, what are we trying to solve? And this, I think, you, you really nailed a point um, earlier when you said that it's about thinking about how do we, what's, what's our marker of progress? Like, how are we moving forward? Um, And that, I think, is a question that should be uppermost in everybody's mind. If you have a problem with the way things are, what's the goal that you're aiming for? What's the world that you see that you would like us to get to? And then we can start drawing a map towards it. But if your map is purely, I'm angry and I want to express it, you're not achieving anything. All you're doing is making everything harder for everyone else. So please stop. Please stop doing that. Like, If you want to express your anger, do it, but you don't need to do it in a public forum, which is actually trying to find ways to help people figure out solutions. And those solutions might be, um, you know, something grand and policy-based. It might just be about how to think about yourself in a way where you don't project your own feelings of anger and insecurity onto the whole movement. Right. Yeah, I thought it was really smart and accurate comparing a lot of this rhetoric to the behavior of a child. Um, and I think for the, I think for the most part, like this is a problem. This, this is very popular amongst in in my generation. It is, I think something that became extraordinarily popular among young people. And I always said like, to me, you know, and I've experienced some hardship in my life as well. And I had to learn a lesson at some point in my adult life, my young adult life, that like I can accept responsibility without taking the blame for something. And yes, I've been hurt. And yes, there's been trauma. And yes, to all of these things. But to sit there and create an identity out of victimhood like that is, like you said, ultimately not empowering and ultimately doesn't give me agency and makes everyone else aside from me responsible for my own life in a way that I think is just completely not fair, but also not productive. Um, this feeling to be invalidated. And I think yeah. this is the problem. If you have a problem that you want to move beyond, you have to be willing to let go of that problem. You have to see it as a problem and you have to go, okay, I'm going to move beyond this now. Um, right. If you don't have that desire, then everything you're doing really is about saying, no, let's hold still here. And so the anger gets to be expressed as much as possible forever. Um, And as I said, in the end, you don't care about what happens to anybody else because it was never about anybody else. It was never about justice. It was never about solidarity with whatever particular identity you're, you're choosing to kind of raise the flag of here. It's about you. It's about pure selfishness. And this is why, for instance, so many conversations about these things devolve into name calling and, you know, accusations of bigotry and whatever else as soon as, a, as soon as the questions get specific. Because there's not that desire to kind of move forward. I was just literally just having a conversation on Twitter with these two guys um, about... Uh, um, Richard Dawkins put out a tweet recently mm. um, asking why it is that transracialism is viewed in such a universally negative way. The concept of pretending to be a different race is viewed so completely negatively. Um, and 
everyone agrees it's it's a lie and you know people shouldn't be in any way humored when they do it um but if you say you're a different gender you are not just supposed to be treated with respect and allowed to live your life in a way that feels genuine you are literally what you now say that you are and that can change of course if you decide okay no now i'm a um, woman again now you're a woman again and it can just go back and forth and we we aren't allowed to say that that's odd we aren't allowed to question that so we have on the one hand transracialism which is kind of universally like no that's terrible we have transgender which is universally yes that's fantastic and richard dawkins asked like why is this you know why do we think that this these superficially at least similar things are treated so differently. Mm-hmm. And as you might suspect on Twitter, um, the whole conversation devolved into this massive like firestorm almost immediately. And um, so I was having this conversation with these two guys. This guy was, no, sorry, what actually happened was um, Richard Dawkins was um, retroactively had a, an award he won in 1996, um, retroactively withdrawn by a humanist organization. They're like, we're not, you know, he's not no longer the winner of this award. Um, and someone had said, oh, I think that's a really good thing. And so I just said, OK, why do you think that? And we had this blog conversation and we got down in the end to this guy saying, I think the important thing in any discussion is that everybody gets to feel safe. And I'm like, no, <laughs> that is not the case. Definitely and, and it's like, the thing is, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm a lefty, right? I'm a softy. I'm totally on board with treating everyone with respect, with, with being considerate, with being polite. I'm totally on board with that. And I think that it's annoying and it's really frustrating when people fail to kind of maintain those basic standards of decency. But if you want to have a conversation where you think about anything more complex than, I don't know, I don't even know where you could go down to. I was going to say what you watch on TV, but we're even in danger there. Any conversation you want to have about any preference or any issue at all of any meaningfulness, you might offend somebody. You might say something which someone else doesn't like. And if we define safety as an environment where you never have to change, challenge your opinions or never have to think about anything complex, right. if that's what safety is, then we're all screwed, right? We can't do, we can't achieve anything with that mindset. Like we have to be able to say that hearing a consent, sorry, a dissenting opinion is not dangerous. Like we can't define that as danger. It's just like, let's, let's talk it out. If I hear something which I just really can't deal with, I can leave that conversation. You know, that's totally fair enough. Of course, as you mentioned earlier, like some people have, um, PTSD triggers over any number of things, and I'm in no way trying to invalidate those or minimize those. Those are big deals for some people. If you don't want to hear this conversation, of course, anyone should be respectful like, to leave the conversation. But what we don't need to do is end the conversation. Right. If you have a problem, like we have to, re- we have to have some level where we say, you know what? Yeah, you can leave. You can leave the conversation. But we need to have it because a lot of these conversations, how we achieve racial equality. Um, how we integrate uh, transgender people fully into society in a way which doesn't um, impact the category of women in a way which is negative for women. These are important questions which we have to think about to answer. It's not just a question of saying, oh, just do whatever makes me feel good. Like, you can't. It's so obvious. Um, And it's so tragic that saying that has become a kind of uh, bigoted or nasty or far-right thing to say. Do you know? It's it's preposterous. Well, yeah. And I think it relates, I mean, even outside of identitarian movements, like I see, especially a lot in my generation as well, this idea of 
you know, safe spaces and like yes. nobody, if there's a trigger, that means I should run in the opposite direction, not go explore it more. And to me, yeah. it's, it's just not a grounds for growth or maturity. Like I'm pretty obsessed with my own growth and maturity and like learning from things and b- being a better person and being I mean, less as we should be right. When right, did that exactly, become something exactly. that we were like, <laughs> yeah. well, actually right. I'm, I'm unusual in this sense. Yeah. Like, but it's yeah, true like, though. That's what it is. Yeah. That's what it is now. And it's kind of right. crazy that we have to say that like it's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, yeah, and it's like all like conflict. There's a book that I have that I need to read, but it's called Conflict is Not Abuse. But I really think that we've begun to see conflict or discomfort. Like, yes, yeah. I agree with you. To some extent, we can't like this conversation, like unless there was a grounds of like safety and mutual respect, we wouldn't be able to have the conversation. But yeah. if that's there, then it gives you the opportunity to engage with opinions that are different from yours and engage with some discomfort and like that's productive um yeah yeah I remember when the Louis CK thing happened and you know he was just like shunned from the universe and offered an apology and nobody cared and to me I'm just like do y'all not want to just like sit down with him and be like hey dude what happened you know like to me that's so obvious and I'm genuinely curious about that and I genuinely Like, if the issue here is the relationship between men and women or the relationship between black people and white people, you're literally telling me we can't have a conversation? Like, I just don't understand how we're supposed to do anything if we can't. I think it's a little worse than that. I think it's that we can't we can't interact with each other. You know, the thing with Louis C.K., I mean, okay, let's take out the fact that he likes to masturbate in front of women, whatever. But. The issue wasn't that he likes to masturbate in front of women. The issue was the fact that he was doing it with women who were in a position of less power than he was, right? So there's this idea that, okay, so he's a big celebrity and they're not. And therefore, inherently, that means that any interaction he has with them is somehow abusive. Now, there are people who make exactly the same argument about men and women in general. People who make exactly the same argument about black and white people in general. So all of a sudden, we have a situation where... I'm constantly, for instance, if I'm having this conversation with you, right, I have to constantly define, well, I don't know, because I'm a man. So I'm a man, but I'm black and you're a woman and you're white. Like, how do we do this? You know, it's kind of like we have this situation where we're constantly trying to figure out our power dynamics instead of just being, hey, let's just all agree that we're equals. Let's have a conversation and let's stop getting into our head about these completely abstract concepts. Like, why is everything isn't about power unless you decide it's about power? And what frustrates me is that so often people take that view and then define themselves as the powerless ones. Like you, right. you make yourself into a victim with all the energy that you can muster and then right. complain. And that's your contribution. Really? Right. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's my opinion, actually, that I think like our whole demonization of power in general and even privilege in general is ridiculous. Like look out in nature, like there's all sorts of transactional relationships and power dynamics happening all the time. To me, and I'm, I'm interested to hear what you think, like, I don't actually think power and privilege are inherently bad unless they're used in an exclusionary, hateful, prejudiced kind of a way. But like, if I have some degree of power, whether that's because I have this platform or because my race or whatever it is, mm. in my mind, there's beneficial, positive, productive ways to use that. Um, and then there's yeah. unproductive and, you know, cruel ways to do that. And I, it's like weird that we sort of like fetishize power in this way in order to become a victim 
And then, you know, I, I wrote something recently that, like, I had to turn the comments off on Instagram because I was getting attacked, <laughs> which is so insane to me because the post was about, I hear a lot of white people say, like, they'll, they'll talk about their shitty job or their shitty relationship or, like, the crap that they're dealing with in their life. And then they'll say at the end, oh, but I know that these are all very privileged problems and, like, white people problems. And often mm. then they don't do anything about it. So they stay in their stupid life with their stupid job and their stupid relationship. And it's like... You actually, because you're white, because you're privileged and have the money to like go to fucking therapy and get a new job, the fact that you're not doing that because you think it's bad to have this power or privilege is mind boggling to me. Like, yeah. it's okay. Like, you, you're sure you're privileged. Yes. But that's not an excuse for you to not do anything with your life or not actually help people who don't have the privilege or power that you have. And literally, I was can't, like, people were like, how dare you say that? I just like I was How like, do you, you guys say read what? It? I mean, this is the thing. Like, what's the what's the controversy there? Like, what's the issue? I don't <laughs> understand what you're objecting to. Because that's the thing. It's kind of like I get that sometimes in the comments of my articles. Um, people will say, and I'm just like, I don't understand what you're angry about. Like, I've ri- it's not even like we. I had a conversation. Like, everything I've said is written down on a page. Like, go and point to the problem. And then come back and say, this is what's wrong. But they can't. They're just, Heather Hines says this beautifully. She says, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Yeah. But a problem with a lot of um, discourse is that what people really want to, oh, no, it's fascinating what, people, what attributes and attitudes people will attribute to someone when what they really want to say is, I disagree with you and I can't defend the disagreement. You know, it's kind of like, I, I don't like what you said. And I wish I had a good reason for disliking it, but I don't. And so what I'm going to do instead is assume that you are an evil, bigoted, in whatever way is convenient person. Because that means I can just jump straight from um, the the requirement of actually defending my position to saying that you're bad. I can just say that you're evil straight away. I can just call you right wing. I can call you a Trump supporter. I can call you a racist. I can call you whatever it might be. And I don't have to think anymore. I don't have to wonder why, whether my feelings are valid or not whether they actually make sense or not. I can just jump straight to your evil. Um, <clears throat> but power and privilege are such kind of complex things, you know? It's kind of like, um, in any given situation, like, is my strength privilege, in, or it certainly is power in a certain situation? Um, mm-hmm. Is a woman's beauty a privilege? Absolutely, in certain situations. Is her race, is, is intelligence? I mean, Jesus. I think one, yeah. one privilege we don't talk about very much at all is intelligence, right? Like, you don't, there's no, there's no way of looking at someone and going, oh, yeah, you're really smart. But the smartest people, like, they have, they have this enormous resource with which to kind of navigate life, which a lot yeah. of people don't have. And that's just there for them. They can always fall back on that. And so, or just resourcefulness or determination or whatever that might be, or good education, there's all these different layers, most of which are not visibly obvious to you at all. And to say, okay, so I'm going to discount all of that. I'm going to look at the color of your skin. I'm going to see uh, whether you're a man or woman. And I'm going to decide that those are the important things. It's kind of preposterous, you know? Mm-hmm. And especially, as we said, because those vary so much situationally. And depending on what's going on at that moment, the power dynamics will be shifting constantly, mm. which is why, again, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to really obsess over them, to focus on them. It's like, yeah, let's just say um, that we'll treat each other as equals and we'll treat each other with respect and politeness. If either of us breaks that deal, then we can we have a problem, right? We can talk about that. <clears throat> but while we treat each other with basic decency and respect, 
I don't see any value in going, oh, yeah, but you're white, though, so X, Y, and Z. Oh, yeah, but you're a man, though, so X, Y. What, what are we doing? Like, what are we, yeah. what are we achieving with that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, and I'm interested to hear even what you, like, it was interesting to recognize I, a lot of the people who are willing to say something about this, similar to you, um, are not. American or have spent a lot of their lives <laughs> elsewhere. Um, and I, you know, I think I was also raised in a way that uh, I was exposed to a lot of different cultures. I lived in France when I was 12 and specifically my mother, I remember her saying like, I wanted you and your brother to understand that there were more realities out there mm. than just your little teeny bubble. Um, and I think America has this problem as a whole that it's extremely cut off from any kind of cross-cultural experience. Like if yeah. you live in Europe, for example, I mean, just the countries are closer and like the exactly, Euro yeah. and you can, you know, um, the European Union and all this stuff. Um, so I, I wonder what you've thought about that too, like this whole, you know, uh, conglomerate this conglomeration of black people as like this one singular identified thing and I'm, I'm just sort of interested to hear how you think about race like and and if you feel black but different than that other kind of black that they seem to be identifying with and like is race at least you know at least in some parts socially constructed dependent on what culture you're from yeah, I mean, that's the problem, isn't it, with, um, I mean, first of all, America obviously has a, a unique relationship with race. Um, you know, Jim Crow, Jim Crow and slavery, um, they are too recent in America's history for there not to be that problem. And, you know, right. um, I think that it's just going to be a while before the, the hangover of that is done. There's, there's, yeah. real, there's real consequences to that, which can't be wiped away overnight. But I do think... Um, for reasons which I haven't quite figured out, but America is a uniquely um, tribal nation, I think. And I say that, like, having been to places, like, I, I've traveled extensively in Asia, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, where you have a lot of monocultures. You know, you walk around in, um, in Asia, in, in almost anywhere in Asia, and you pretty much only see people who look a certain way. They all look the same way. Um, and so there's a degree of xenophobia in those countries. There's a degree of racism in those countries. Um, oh, as I said, you know, sometimes it's very positive, like in, um, in Vietnam, sometimes it's more negative, like some parts of Korea, it's quite negative, some parts of China, um, yeah. some parts of Japan and other parts of Japan, it's not an issue. But, but yeah, America has this kind of uniquely, I don't know, this, this unique tendency towards grouping themselves in, in these identitarian ways. So mm. whether it be by gender, whether it be by whatever else, it's this kind of there's this kind of natural tendency towards, towards tribalism, towards like, yeah, let's, let's fight these guys. These are the bad guys. Mm. These are the good guys. Mm. Um, and I don't know quite what is required to get past that as a, as a, as a, as a mindset. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely don't see that same degree of consciousness about race anywhere else in the world. And I've been, you know, most of the places, I don't see that degree of consciousness about race at all. Um, no, I spent, I was in, the only time I've really felt that same level of, of awareness of race is when I was in South Africa, which again, obviously mm -hmm. has an even more right. recent uh, history of deep, deep racism. And again, you can see that divide so very, very clearly. It's so sharp. Um, yeah. 
And and so, yeah, you know, there is, there's still that sense of, you see a lot of white people in South Africa with that sense of guilt um, of what's gone on and how they've benefited. It's very clear that they've benefited from subjugating other people who did not deserve to be subjugated. Mm-hmm. And they look at their position and they're constantly reminded. And I mean, it's, it's not subtle, you know, there's like big gated communities with like huge high walls and barbed wire fences and security alarms um, full of white people. And those wars and security companies exist to keep the black people out. Like that's the way it is. And this is in Africa. So yes. it's, um, <laughs> it's, 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 <laughs> there are, there are those countries with this very recent, very kind of serious history of racism, which I think is just going to be tough. Um, yeah. But I think America is just kind of a scrappy nation. It's that they, they just, there's that desire to fight and to kind of, you know, you listen to political rhetoric in America, right? And it's, there's all that like fight, fight, fight kind of mentality. Um, or the underdog mentality as well, I think is very big. Um, and uh, it almost feels like it's less comfortable when people are like, yeah, you know what, we kind of, we figured it out, we did well, we've made progress. Because this is the other thing as well, I think it's really difficult to get some people to acknowledge that progress has been made and just to go, okay, yeah, we've moved forward. There's still work to be done. Um, and people don't want to acknowledge that. And they're, they're happy just to focus on, well, these are the bad things though. And it's like, yeah, but if you're constantly telling yourself that the, everything is terrible and nothing is changing when it very clearly is, yeah. then, of course, you kind of feel worse about the way that things are in the world. Um, right. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I mean, not to get super wooey, too, but like, how does the energy of how we look at these things and approach these things and talk about these things actually create them in real time? You know, like, oh, of course, yeah. yesterday you know, with George Floyd and he was found guilty and like the barrage of stuff that comes up, like this isn't justice, this is pacification. It's like, I get it. We have a lot of work to do, but I feel like this constant framing of like, we're going to fight for this and talk about this nonstop for years. And then the outcome is what we want it to be. And and then it's just another opportunity for us to say, fuck this, fuck that. And it's like, okay, I mean, I don't want to you know, say that we're entirely responsible for creating our reality, but to some extent, if the entire culture could just act differently and treat each other differently, <laughs> like, I, I really do think that would play a role. And I'm, I still question whether we actually want to solve this problem or if we're just more interested in um, spinning it around and around. I'll tell you what I found really interesting. I watched, um, there's a clip of Nancy Pelosi uh, talking after the, the um, conviction was announced. Mm-hmm. And ah, oh, it was. I mean, I felt so. I don't even know. It's like a new emotion. I don't even know <laughs> how to describe it. Of like disgust and anger and bewilderment and disbelief, where she's like, "Thank you, George Floyd." Basically, thank you, George Floyd, for dying because like it, it allowed us to get this guilty verdict. It was it was the most bizarre, like backwards, sycophantic nonsense I've ever heard in my life, and it's like. People were stood there, like, nodding, and, and it's just kind of like, wait a minute, like, a man died, shouldn't have died, and the man who killed him, we were wondering whether he'd be convicted, and he was. Okay, this is not a cause for celebration. This isn't a cause yeah. of, like, yeah, okay, we did it, guys. Like, this is just, okay, this sucks. Like, that's yeah, that's right. that's what's meant to happen. That's the legal system working as it's supposed to do, and, of course, police accountability is a whole different problem. Right. But I think that the thing with the George with the George Floyd case, it became so. I mean, it's true, right? It was impossible. I think I can't imagine 
what would have happened if Chauvin hadn't been convicted. Like, I oh, cannot yeah. imagine. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of, there's, there's this kind of, there's this, there's this conflict within me where I think, you know what, he deserves to go to jail. Like, I'm not in any way confused about that. He deserves to go yeah. to jail. What he did was absolutely demonstrably wrong. Everybody knows it. Yeah. But at the same time, though, I watched that trial and I know that there, there's no way that that trial is really can be a fair trial. It, it can't. It, there's just too much been going on for the past year to let that really right. be an impartial judgment of the facts. And it's on TV and everyone knows what's going on and everyone knows the importance of this trial. And so it's kind of like I'm not in any way hoping he doesn't get convicted, but I just want to feel like it's it's an actual. Right. You know, it's an actual legitimate process. I want to feel like it's just it's happening because it's supposed to happen and not because there was this enormous social pressure for it to happen. Do you know what I mean? Like, I I want to see that it's happening for the right reasons. I want it to happen. I just want it to happen for the right reasons. And it feels a little bit hollow that it's happened. Well, I can't say it's happened because of that, but we don't know. You know, it's like this 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 weird situation where it feels like we've just found a sacrificial lamb. To, well, not a lamb. He's not guilty. He's not innocent. But we found someone to kind of go, hey, cool. Let's focus all of our racial animus on this guy for this time being. And right. now that that's been done, it's like, oh, what do we do now? You know, now who are we angry at? It's like right. we're just looking for the next person because, yeah. again, like these symbols rise up every now and again to become the focus of everyone's attention. Yes. But they're not the, they're not the issue in the end. They're not really what we're trying to solve. They're not really the answer. It's kind of like, yeah, okay, but we still have to go back and then go, okay, what do we do? For my mind, actually, with, with regards to police brutality, what do we do about police brutality? I just wrote an article about this, and I didn't actually go too deeply into this subject. But to my mind, I did in the comments more, but police brutality isn't a partisan issue. It's not a black and white, it's not a racialized issue. It's just an issue where police officers kill people often on camera, and nothing happens to them. And that's not really cool, right? Yeah. Something has to yeah. be done about that. And I think that we'd actually do better if we stop focusing on, oh, people of a certain colour are being killed, because the truth is that people of all colours are being killed. And let's talk about how do we really make sure that the police are held accountable reliably? How do we do that? Um, yeah. If we do that effectively, it doesn't matter. We don't, have to, we don't have to worry about the race of the people being killed because people aren't being killed anymore which should be the end goal, right? So it's kind of like there are certain situations in the world where it's really important to focus on the minority group. There are certain issues for women that we can't just go, oh, yeah, let's just look at that as a broad spectrum problem. No, it's a women's problem. We need to look at that carefully in that context. Same for race, same for sexuality, blah, 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 yes. But I think the vast majority of problems are problems we can just look at as human problems. What do we do to fix this issue which is affecting human beings? It doesn't matter if 20% of them are like this and 30% of them are like this and whatever else. Like, let's just solve the problem. Um, and let's get everybody on board with it rather than going, oh, you know what? If you aren't part of my group, you can't even have an opinion about this problem. Like, yeah. again, I think that what we're really seeing, and which, which I think is the saddest aspect of it, is just it's like the death of empathy as a concept, ever kind of as a way of actually helping us understand each other and solve problems together. We just kind of say, oh, no, if you're not if you're not one of me. And by the way, what does one of me mean? Do right. I think the same thing as the next black person? Of course I don't. You know, not necessarily, at least. Um, yeah. So it's not even like you get a bunch of black people in a room and you get this wonderful, cohesive unit of mind, of, of thoughts. Um, so uh, I, again, I just I don't know what people are aiming at. But I think 
to go back to a point you made right at the beginning, I think so many people are afraid to just say, hey, guys, does this make sense? That, that we're, they're just running along with what the majority is saying because they don't want to get in any trouble. As you say, like my articles as well, my articles are littered with private messages. Oh, yeah. man, thank you so much for saying this. I could never say it myself. But, you know, <laughs> right. absolutely, it's ridiculous. Like, actually, I think one of my most popular articles um, is broken the private messaging system. Like, I can't access my private messages on there anymore because there are just too many on there. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and it's like, I, as we just kind of touched on earlier, like, I, I don't really understand why it's so difficult to talk honestly. And I think really speaking, the fundamental problem is more people need to find that courage within them to tell the truth, you know, to actually be honest about how they feel and to do it in a way which is, again, I'll say it over and over again, to be respectful and to be considerate of people's feelings. I think that's really important to actually educate yourself about the issues before you start blabbering on about them, know something about what you're talking about. Yes, absolutely. Um, but with that in place, like people need to actually take it upon themselves to say, you know what? No, I'm not going to pretend this makes sense anymore. I'm not going to pretend that, say, like a definition of racism, which basically demands that you say that you're racist to not be racist, makes any sense. Like we can't we can't operate like that. We have to be able to say, OK, so if we're going to define these terms and if we're going to talk to each other and if we're going to find solutions, we've got to really be um willing to say what we think in the public sphere mm. um, and in a way which isn't just shouting you know because that's the thing I think that so many people are so scared to say what they want to say that when they finally work up the courage it's like you're yeah. stupid you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's that's all they can really do because their brains are kind of so shut down by fear and it's like yeah. no I think if you if you can express that you care about this issue that you've thought about it um, but you have a question to ask about some inconsistency in the way that it seems to be presenting itself. Um, I think that's a really powerful way of communicating. And yes, you know, you're going to get some pushback, most definitely. Um, but I think it's actually a lot less terrible than most people fear. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I, I like what you said about empathy, too. I think we're so focused on strategies involving shame and silencing. And, you know, to me, yeah. especially as a millennial, you know, I'm, we talk a lot about trauma and the nervous system. And like, to me, it's quite clear, especially given the, the recent, very recent, um, not just personal abuse that people suffer, but uh, the American, like, like, you know, Jim Crow and racism, these things happened very recently. A lot of people are extremely traumatized and extremely hurt. Mm. And I think that that's where a lot of it's coming from, you know, like uh, in the Me Too movement, women who are, have been genuinely hurt in a lot of ways have been genuinely, yeah. you know, um, silenced and raped and abused and assaulted. Yeah. Um, and so it makes sense that we have, <laughs> we want to express these things and it makes sense that we want to bring them to the surface and it makes sense that we want them to be heard. And, you know, it's, it's difficult for me sometimes now sort of being able to take a step back and like seeing these dynamics for what they are. Like to me, it's very clearly, there's like a lot of people with a lot of unprocessed trauma. Um, and I think Absolutely, that also, yeah. you know, why a lot of people are hesitant to kind of say something too, because it's like, I don't want to make you feel like your experience was invalid, but also, 
I'm not really sure if this kind of, you know, uh, blaming, shaming strategy is actually going to even help you long term. Yeah, um, that's the thing. That's actually the thing. I think that's really the, the absolute nail on the head for me. It's kind of like, OK, let's talk about compassion. Right. If someone has been through something terrible and you want to help them with that, what's the solution? Well, um, what was it? Wasn't it a movie or something where someone basically takes someone and they convince them that it's the same day over and over again for like years because they feel safe in this day? You can do that to someone. Right. You can coddle them in this way where you say, you know what, I'm going to protect you from the entire world. And I'm going to create this safe little bubble for you where nothing can ever hurt you. I'm going to do that for you. And I'm going to rob you of your entire life. That's fundamentally what's going to happen there. You'll have this safe day and the rest of the world will pass you by. Or I can try and give you the tools and the strength and the support that you need for you to actually interact with the real world. This is, for example, the fundamental job of a parent to their child, right? This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to challenge them. You're supposed to give them adversity, but you're supposed to do it in a way which is safe and workable for them. Just outside of the comfort zone, nothing which is going to ruin their lives or traumatize them. But at the same time, nothing which is going to ruin their lives by making them so weak and feeble that when people don't love them universally and unconditionally, they suddenly can't cope. Um, And I think that It's almost exactly like that. We've kind of created this culture where our approach to being compassionate is to say, right, I'm going to treat you as if I'm an overprotective parent who only wants to say yes to you all the time and make everything comfortable for you. That, in my mind, is not compassion. It's cowardice. All you're doing is making life easier for yourself in that moment. And you're not concerned. Absolutely. And you're not concerned with what happens to that person going forward because not everyone is going to feel the same way. Not everyone is going to be as kind and considerate and patient as you are. And I think that while you normalize their pathology, then you are not helping them, you know? And it's kind of like the the problem with that is you'll get some pushback on that, you know, from that person. People want to feel comfortable and safe, of course. So when you say, no, I'm not going to completely buy into that, they'll give you some pushback. And I think that the duty of a good friend or a good parent or whatever it might be is to engage with that anyway like uh, just one quick example like there's this video which i just posted on twitter it's oh my god every time i see it like it it really gets me it's so beautiful there's little kid he's probably about four or five years old and um he's in a karate school and his teacher is holding this wooden board for him to break yeah and he's telling to kick it and so he kicks it and, you know, he basically brushes his foot against it. <laughs> Nothing happens. And the kid's like, no, you've got to kick it. You've got to kick it hard. So he tries again very half-heartedly. And um, he's like, I can't do it. And he starts crying. And it's honestly heartbreaking. And this kid, he must get everything he wants at home because his crying made me feel like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, it was really, yeah. really emotional. <laughs> and, um, and the instructor's having none of it. It's just like, no, 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 you can do this. You're going to have to do it again. This kid has to try it again like four or five times. By the end of it, like the whole school, a bunch of other little kids are kind of chanting his name. Um, And on the last kick, he kicks through it. And all the kids like just start cheering. This instructor jumps up for joy. They all bundle on top of this kid. It's honestly the most beautiful moment I've ever seen, or in recent memory at least. And um, and I, I reposted it and I just said, these are the moments that we deny children if we try and shield them from all adversity. 
because I completely understand the desire to, to run in and scoop that kid up and say, it's fine, it doesn't matter, it's such a stupid board, don't worry about it. Right. And none of the people in that room gave in to that temptation. No, you can do this. We're with you. We support you. And he did it. And, you know, the look on that kid's face when he finally gets through that board, like, oh, my God, like that's. Yeah. That's what we're denying people. We're denying people those breakthroughs. If you know what, you are stronger than you think. You can overcome this trauma. You can honor your experience and you can also put it where it belongs. You know, I'm not even going to say put it behind you if you don't want to put it behind you, but you can, you can give it its place and you can decide where that place is and you don't have to be a victim of it anymore. Um, and I think that that's, that's a critical part of all these conversations that we're missing, you know, is this head trauma is real and it's affecting people in all kinds of different ways. And for women, for black people too, um, I say for more for women, actually, there are these daily things, right? There are these little irritations uh, that, that will just accompany your experience through life. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them are worse than others, you know, and they, and they happen. And it's like, okay, cool. So what do we do going forward? Because ultimately now, whoever that dickhead guy was or whoever, you know, this racist was or whatever it was, they're off now living their lives. You're the one stuck with this. Mm-hmm. So you being angry at them does not affect them and it affects you. Right. Um, so on that personal level, you have to work through that. We have to find a way. It's not fair. It's not just, it'd be lovely if you could take that feeling and push it onto that person, but we can't. So you have to deal with it. And then on a societal level, on a much bigger level, it's the same thing, right? It's kind of like, okay, yes, we can look at slavery. We can look at Jim Crow. We can talk about how unfair that was. We can talk about the systemic oppression of women. We can talk about how long it took for gay people to get the right to marriage. We can talk about the ways that uh, trans people are marginalized in society and attacked and killed just for living in a way that feels authentic to them. We can talk about all of those things. Those are important. Yeah. But how do we help? How do we move forward? Because while we don't move forward, the only people suffering are the people who we're trying, you know, who we should be aimed at helping. And every time we stick ourselves in that bubble and say, yeah, you know what, like that's just the way it is and it's terrible and we should pass this message on to our children, life's going to be terrible for them too. And, you know, we, we perpetuate this. We keep ourselves in this cycle of our own free will and it's the most tragic thing I can imagine. Um, yeah. Yeah, I never, I didn't think about it as much before, but it really does remind me of like, you know, the co- a codependent relationship you have with like your drunken, your, your alcohol, yeah. uh, alcoholic child or something. And it's like that, that, that push and pull of, you know, like I had to, my, I had a really problematic relationship with my mother for a while and I had to eventually for my own sanity, like cut contact, we're back in contact again. But I remember like making that decision to protect myself and to be like, I can no longer support this. And I'm dying as a result because I don't know who I am or what I think. Um, You know, you have to, you do have to come up against, like, I was like, I don't know, maybe she'll kill herself or like, you know, especially if it's someone with substance abuse, like you don't know what's going to happen when you stop sort of sacrificing all of yourself in order to take care of them. Um, yeah. But I do feel like we need, and it sort of feels like that, you know, the people who are willing to take these steps to say something, it's not to that extreme, but it does feel and is sometimes dangerous. And it, you know, and it doesn't feel great all of the time. I have this funny story that <laughs> I was maybe not going to tell, but I feel like you would appreciate it. Um, yeah. I was seeing this guy for a while, black, older, so not in my generation. And we were at a, like an art show. And this guy's like, 
overcome so much adversity, like grew up in South Central LA, like just created this whole career for himself out of nothing. Like all of his friends and family are in jail, just like not, you know, not privileged by any stretch of the imagination, but really like pulled himself up by his bootstraps and created this successful life for himself. And we're at this show and there was this younger black woman who was there and the two of them were having a conversation and I was just sort of standing watching and his son was there. Like there was a bunch of witnesses and she was complaining (laughs) about, she was complaining about her neighborhood and, and how, you know, they don't pick up trash regularly and in the white neighborhoods they always do. And it was sort of this like complain fast about whatever. And he I mean, he's very sort of like avant-garde, but he he put his hand, he doesn't know this woman, aside from that she did approach him and say, like, I love your work, you're amazing, blah, blah, blah. So there seemed to be like a rapport and understanding. And yeah. and he went, as she's complaining, he puts his hand on her arm and sort yeah. of like, not violently, but like grabs it. <laughs> and she's yeah. and she's sort of surprised. And so she moves away, she pulls it away. And she, and he says, see, <laughs> when you're uncomfortable, you, you pull away, you take action and you do something. And so he was trying to create this like living yeah. metaphor for, <laughs> anyway, we go, we hang out at the show a little bit more and we go downstairs like to leave maybe 15 minutes later and she's called the cops on him. Uh, oh saying that he's assaulted. Yeah. And it was such a perfect, like, I don't know, it, it symbolized so much for me. Like, here, here's this black woman calling the cops on a black man. So, like, first of all, what is going on here? Like, second of mm. all, he's empowering you and you're angry that he's empowering you. And, you know, like yeah. some of these and of course, that's not what he intended. But like the consequence it feels, I think, sometimes for people and being canceled. Like, this is a real, you know, people yeah. without like privilege, like that can be extremely frightening but i just think all the more reason for people like you or for me who for whatever reason for lack of a better term have the balls to say stuff like we have to say stuff because i think that vulnerability (laughs) like breeds vulnerability and like i don't want that i don't want people to have the cops called on them and i don't want people to be stripped of their this goes back to what we were saying it's like people don't want empowerment isn't the point like that's not what she wants she wants someone to feed into the narrative which she is telling herself over and over every day and anything he did which challenged that would have been met with displeasure obviously she wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity to call the cops Um, but anything that she did because of the fact that all she wants to do is kind of continue believing that thing and it's kind of like okay cool so you you are keeping yourself in prison and you are fighting anybody who tries to help you out of it. Like, that's your existence, you know? Like, you can do that if you want, but it's not fair of you, really, to expect other people to join you in that. You know, that's not right. our job. If you want to do that, then, okay, we can't stop you. But, uh, you know, yeah, it's not right to play that game. The thing is, the thing about people who don't speak up is I think that often they, they think they're doing it out of compassion. And as right. I said, I don't, I think that they're doing it out of cowardice. I think they're doing it because it's the easiest thing to do. Um, they're doing it because the simplest thing to do is to say, oh, yes, yes, you're right. Um, and then go off and speak to someone else and go, oh, yeah, I think the complete opposite. Like there was this case recently of a guy who, um, a teacher at a school who's been, which has been infected by this whole critical race theory, teaching children about, you know, that they're either oppressors or oppressed and blah, blah, blah. And he ended up um, speaking out publicly against it. He's been kind of quietly campaigning within the school for a year to try and get these things out of the school, but it's not worked. So he's spoken out about it publicly. And the headmaster of the school wrote this uh, public letter saying, no, this is awful. Like we believe in all this stuff very firmly and we're committed to this 
um, equity program that we're running. Mm-hmm. And um, the guy he spoke out originally was like, actually, you didn't say that to me in private. And he has a recording of their conversation where he's saying, yeah, this is all for we're kind of we're making these children responsible for something which they had no part in and blah, blah, blah. He recognizes the problems, but he's just not willing to say it in public because he wants to cover his own ass. And it's like, don't betray yourself. Don't don't pretend that you're doing this out of some kind of altruism. Like, that's not what this is. Like, this is cowardice. You're covering your own arms and you're not concerned about the damage which you know you're doing to the children in your school in the process. Like, I think it's kind of despicable. So when people are kind of too, when people have really bought into this stuff and they start defending it, I'm honestly suspicious because I give people enough faith to believe that they're not stupid, you know, and they can see the problems with this. Um, But I'm aware of the social pressure there is to be kind of supportive of it vocally anyway. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I will, I will engage with people. I'll talk to people. I know that, you know, of course, like it, it would be ridiculous of me to imagine that people are just going to throw away their careers and the uh, means they have to support their families and whatever else. Like, I understand that it's not simple for everyone to discover. No, I'm going to make a stand. Um, right. but I think that again, like, I think that the people who kind of get themselves into real trouble, often you can really easily see why. You know, they said something which is just so stupid or so clumsy or so racist or whatever it might be, um, that it was just easy to jump on. Like mm-hmm. there are, I had a conversation recently. I wrote this article about um, the spa shootings where everyone was immediately like, oh, my God, racist attack. And I'm like, no, no, I don't think it was. Like, I'm not denying that there's racism. Right. I'm not denying that at all. I'm not, totally. I'm not denying that there's, this, there's, there's a serious problem with anti-Asian right. attacks at the moment. This is absolutely true. But I'm saying this particular thing, because Asian people died, it doesn't necessarily make sense to tie that into this narrative. Maybe there's going to be, ever, I mean, this is like a few days after the attacks. So I'm like, maybe something's going to come out where we see, oh, yeah, that was totally his plan. But everything we know right now suggests that that wasn't the case. So I wrote this thing, and this is one of my more controversial articles recently. A lot of people are like, oh, my God, no, this is terrible. How can you say that? And I'm having a conversation with this one guy who I can see. It's it's hilarious because, you know, he's just so desperate to call me racist. <laughs> like, he really, really wants to. <laughs> and he desperately wishes I was white. So he can just go, yeah. oh, you're a racist and just, just wipe me off. But I'm not. So he has to kind of engage me on the issues. And first, and also that I'm, I'm also very aware of what's going on in the Asian community. So I can talk to him about that and say, yes, I realize this. I'm not in any way denying it. Like, I know about these cases. I know who you're talking about. I know about these historical cases as well. I've done my research. That doesn't change the facts of what we know about this case. And I think that that's the, that's the armor that we have against the cancellation, the cancel culture people, you know, is it's kind of like, they they need they need to be able to take I mean, if you go on Twitter and you look at how quickly or Instagram or any number of these platforms, how quickly people will go, Oh, so you're saying this and it's something so preposterous, so millions of miles away from anything you could possibly have really meant to say. Um they're looking for ways to attack you in bad faith. And so I think that yes, you do need a certain degree of kind of savviness to navigate that. But it's not a huge amount. Like, I think that if, you, if you're paying attention and you're saying, look, I'm not trying to diminish the existence of problems in general. I'm trying to say, is this the best solution? Um, right. It's very hard to kind of to, to cancel people over that. You know, I, I, I've never seen it happen, personally. I've never seen right. it happen. Um, right. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, that the that attack for me. I mean, I'm I'm very much like immersed in the world of of sexuality as well, and so mm. to me, that was like okay, that was like a really you know fundamentalist Christian white boy who you know is in fan you know um, sexualizing Asian women and all- sex workers. Yeah, like, and to me. It's like we're at that's also a real problem. Like sexual repression also causes violence. Like we're not (laughs) we're totally sidestepping the the actual problem, which is actually important to talk about. And we're we're pretending like it's this whole other thing, which I get it. Like it's timing wise. You can kind of make sense of that. But to me, it was so clear that it was something else. And it's like we're being so irresponsible by not focusing on the issue at hand. Um, well, especially violence against sex workers is one of those problems which is absolutely endemic and which yeah. nobody talks about because it's kind <laughs> of, again, the news doesn't surface these stories. No one cares about these prostitutes being killed on the streets, whatever, right. is the attitude right. most of the time. Right. Here we have a high profile case where we can actually talk about this problem and we're not talking about it. Like the fact that they're sex workers. It took me a while when I heard this story to even kind of really be sure they were sex workers. Because yeah. all you're hearing is Asian. I didn't know that there were other people involved in the attack until I did a bit more research. I didn't know that there was a man, I didn't know there was a white woman. Yeah. I didn't know about a Hispanic guy. Six Asian women, six Asian women over and over and over again. And of course, like that's tragic. They shouldn't have died either. But let's yeah. talk about the whole story. Let's solve the right problem. Um, and let's actually give, again, let's give a spotlight to a problem which is really serious and which nobody is talking about because no one protects these women. These women are out there working in these jobs. It's not safe. Uh, it's, it's definitely not pleasant work. Um, yeah. And and they deserve our attention as well when something like this happens. Um, and so to see that kind of all brushed under the carpet and, you know, the, the only passing reference to it is, oh, Asian women are sexualized. Yes, they are. Fine. Right. But that's not the issue here. They're <laughs> yeah. working in a sex parlor. <laughs> like, right. of course, they're being sexualized in this particular context. Like, the, right. the sex part is the issue. And exactly, right. as you said, the fundamentalist Christian part is the problem. Right. Like, right. why does this guy feel that he needs to kill women because of the fact that he is addicted to sex or he can't stop himself from having sex with them? Right. Like, that's his problem, which he's putting on to women, right. uh, which is a problem, again, that we see in a lot of, in a, in a lot of men. Uh, when it comes to sexual violence or violence against women in general, it's because they can't deal with their sexual feelings, whether it's the incels or whether it's any number of other situations. It's like we can't afford to just kind of always be funneling our conversations to a certain narrative um, and and leaving anybody who doesn't fit it out. Like that doesn't work. Yeah. And I think that's why to me it feels so important to speak up because I don't think, you know, focusing, focusing on anti-Asian racism when that's not necessarily the case or seeing the police issue as a purely racial problem when it's like much broader than that. Um, like we're actually doing harm here, right? Like this isn't just, yeah. Like, and I, and I think it's irresponsible and dangerous for people who have the, the capability of speaking up, you know, someone like, and and the the canceling thing, it's like okay, I'm gonna block you. Like I don't care what race you are. If you're harassing me and telling your audience to come and harass me, like I can cut mm. that off. Like this is a social yeah. media channel, and like God forbid, you know, someone tracks you down or something. But we, yeah. I don't know. I, I think we make a lot of excuses for for why we don't speak up or say something or have that brave voice. And 
to me, it's like that, that's the activism. Like that's the activism we need to be doing, you know? Thank the, you. The, yes. the kind that's actually dangerous and actually... People have forgotten yeah. that, right? That activism yeah. is uncomfortable sometimes. That it's not just this kind of like circle where you sit around and go, oh, yes, yes, like a struggle <laughs> session. No, no, no. Actually, sometimes you have to say something. Like, you know, think about like, I, I was actually going to make this analogy at some point in the future in an article. It's like, you think about abolitionism, for instance. Now, um, there's this guy, George McNeil, I want to say, but that's not right. That's definitely not right. I should someone else. Anyway, there's a professor, Robert George, maybe. Mm. And he, um, every now and again, he'll ask his students, um, what would you have done? Like, if you were living back in the time of slavery and you were white and you were living in the South, what would you have done? And all of them, all of them would have been abolitionists. All of them would have been there, like, bravely fighting against slavery. Of course, they're convinced. And of course they wouldn't. <laughs> you all yeah. know this. Like it was dangerous. People were killed. Um, right. White people were killed for even mentioning the fact that they were against slavery back then. In some cases. Yeah. But from our perspective now, it's so easy to say that slavery was wrong. It's so obvious to us that we can't imagine doing anything less. And I think that's a really good thing in a way, right? It's a good thing that that shows how much progress you've made from being afraid of your life if you said the truth to reaching a point where it's kind of self-evidently obvious. And I think that this is what people, this is why when we look at activism, we kind of forget that it's difficult because we look at it from the perspective of now of like, yeah, of course you say that to then where no, no one was saying that. No one was saying that at all. And there were serious consequences for being the person that did say it. That's what activism is. Like if you're being an ally to someone and everything you want to say about them is easy, they don't need your help. Right. There's no yeah. problem if it's easy just to say everything that needs to be said about them. Like some of the things that you need to say in order to help people in order to move things forward will be uncomfortable. Some people will disagree. Some people will push back. And I'm not saying that should be the barometer that you're causing controversy, uh, that yeah. you're doing a good thing, you know, but but it's definitely in there. You know, that's definitely a factor is that there should be some degree of like, OK, so what needs to be said here rather than what is the safe thing to say? Like yeah. that, that can't be the, the barometer of which we're using to kind of decide what, should, what we should be talking about. Yeah. Agreed. I feel like that's a good mm. note to end it on, although I could probably keep talking for another hour and a half. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you so much again. Um, if you could pleasure. let everyone know where to find you. And then I also ask everyone at the end of uh, the podcast, if they could recommend a book or two that was really like transformative um, or important to you in your life, what would it be? <laughs> Oh, wow. That's a tough one. Um, okay, so you can find me at stevequj at medium.com or dot medium.com, sorry, stevequj.medium.com or on Twitter at stevequj, but it's S-T-E-E-V-Q-J. Um, and I'm there. Uh, ooh, books. I tell you what's really to, I, I shouldn't confess this as a writer, but I don't read that many books. I'm not an <laughs> avid book reader. I um I read a lot. I read a lot of articles. I kind yeah. of read a lot of essays, but not really books. Um, hmm. Or even like an author. No, you know what? If it's not book specific. An author. You know what? I'm really struggling. James Baldwin. I'm going to recommend James Baldwin. Okay, James love Baldwin it. <laughs> like, let's let's <laughs> always read James Baldwin. Um, yes. I suppose for counter narratives as well. Like, I it's funny. I feel tempted to kind of preface this with I don't agree with everything he says, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's a really stupid way of looking at things. Like, of course I don't agree with everything he says, <laughs> but I think that 
but maybe it needs to be said because I think that that's one of the problems we have in our society is that when we take a, a viewpoint, it's so tied to the person who says it. And we imagine that, okay, so if they say, if they're right about this and they have to be right about everything and I don't have to think anymore when I listen to their point of view, I can just go, they said it, it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, Thomas Sowell, I think, is a fantastic thinker. Um, and I think that he is a great example of the bravery you're talking about. Like, certainly back in the, like, you know, when he was most prolific, he um, was saying exactly the wrong thing all the time about racial issues, about welfare, about mm-hmm. how to improve the lives of black people. Um, lots of people were totally against him. Lots of people in the black community were totally against him. Um, but a lot of what he says has been borne out to be true. Um, so I would definitely, for people kind of looking for a more well-rounded view of the way that race can be viewed, I would definitely recommend it. Awesome. Thank you. My pleasure. Hello, everybody. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I was so just thrilled, honestly, listening back to it today. Um, and I'm so thankful that people like Steve are willing to come forward and speak about these things on their own, but also, um, yeah, spend their time and energy to talk with me about them. So uh, super grateful for that. I really recommend going to subscribe to Steve's um, Medium. His writing is amazing. I'm going to play you out today with... Um, a song called In the Real World by Alex Sarah definitely does not need an explanation. <laughs> it will make a ton of sense. Um, I've been looking forward to playing the song on the podcast for a while, actually. It applies to so much of what I talk about um, and so much of what I'm trying to create, too, I think, in the Patreon community. Like a real world with real people who communicate respectfully and empathetically and who walk toward their triggers and try to figure their shit out and grow and um, all the good things that we're missing as far as community goes. So please enjoy this song. I hope to see you at some point on the road, maybe in Crestone when we start building. Who knows? But I hope to meet as many of you as possible in real life, in the real world. Thank you for listening. Until next time. In the real world And I found myself In the real world I'll meet you
entonces ahí pasan cosas misteriosas. que la, la música no, no le pertenece a nadie. O sea, cuando haces música y conectas, entras en ella. Como algo que ya está, ya existe, ya existe. Wake up from a dream. Thank you. 